Oscar Groening. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a child living in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime in the 1930s. And as he grew, here he is as a, as a young man, as he grew, he came to like Nazism and all that the Nazis represented because he believed, and I quote, they were the people who wanted the best for Germany and they did something about it. So in 1940, when he was of age, Oskar Groening joined the German army. And he worked as a bookkeeper. He had a desk job until about 1942 when he was reassigned to a top secret mission. One that he was told from the higher-ups he could not even disclose to family and friends. Oskar Groening and the others in his unit were sent to Auschwitz. It was a place that Groening and the others had not heard of before. They'd never heard the name. But it's a place that we now recognize as one of the most horrific death camps during the Jewish Holocaust. His job, Groening's job, was to count money that was taken up from the prisoners and to sort through personal items which he in time learned would never be returned to their owners. He was informed about the systematic extermination of prisoners. He knew what was going on. He saw himself for his own eyes, the bodies of Jewish children and the handicapped after they were shot. He heard the screams and the cries coming from the gas chambers during his time at Auschwitz. Now, when the war ended and the Allied forces were victorious, groaning was sent uh, to Britain, and he served there a brief yet comfortable stint as a forced laborer. But then in 1947, he was returned to Germany, and his life went back to normal as it was before. He was reunited with his wife. He landed a good job at a glass factory. He became a keen stamp collector. And for 40 years after the war, he lived a normal, peaceful Middle-class life in Germany. And when I reflect on Oscar Groening's story, it leads me to ask this question. How could this man live with himself after what he witnessed? After what he consented to by his silence? Did he have to shave with his eyes closed because he couldn't look at himself in the mirror every morning? How could he sleep at night with guilt like that? And that's our one word for the day, guilt. How could this man live with himself with blood on his hands? You know, as we turn to the scriptures this morning, we could ask Joseph's brothers the very same thing. Because we know what they did, don't we? We're familiar with the story of the young Joseph and his brothers We know how much his brothers hated him because he was their dad's favorite, because he was so beloved by their father Jacob that Jacob gave him a coat, a coat of many colors. Nobody else got a coat. The brothers hated him because he was having these dreams where they were all bowing down to him. He was the youngest, and so they hated him. The scripture makes that very clear. And when Jacob sent Joseph out to watch over his flocks with his brothers, when they saw him coming from a distance, 
they began to plot to kill him. And they said to him deridingly, here comes that dreamer. You know what they wanted to do to him. They wanted to kill him and to throw him in a pit. But Reuben, the oldest brother, steps in and says, okay, guys, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit. And Reuben, the scripture says in Genesis 37, was planning to go back later and rescue him. So they throw him in there, but while Reuben is not paying attention, there are some traitors that are on their way to Egypt. And the rest of the brothers sell their brother into Egyptian slavery. And they take him down to Egypt. And then they take his coat, that beloved coat that his dad gave him, and they dip it in animal blood, and they take it back to Jacob, and it is implied, and Jacob believes that his boy, his beloved boy Joseph, has been torn to shreds by an animal. And they let their father believe that, after what they did. For 22 years, they don't see Joseph. For 22 years, they have to live with what they did to him. How could they live with themselves? How could they go day to day with that kind of guilt? How could they sleep at night after doing what they did to their brother and lying about it? I mean, were they racked with guilt? Were they burdened with it on a daily basis? When Joseph's brothers finally see him again, as I said, it's 22 years later. And there's a great famine in the land of Canaan where Jacob and his family lived. But they've heard that in Egypt there are storehouses filled with grain. And so Jacob sends the brothers, all but Benjamin, the youngest, to Egypt to buy some grain for the the family. And would you believe that their brother Joseph is up there in Egypt and he's governor over the land? Through a series of amazing events and the providential care of God, Joseph is in charge of the storehouses. And he's in charge of doling out grain to the hungry people. And when his brothers come and they bow before him, just like Joseph dreamed, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He looks pretty different after 22 years of living in Egypt. And in chapter 42, he... Well, he makes them sweat a little bit, okay? He tests them. He accuses them of being spies, and he places them in custody. And I want us to pick up in chapter 42, starting at verse 18. After Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt, and Joseph has placed them in custody, listen to this, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men... Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry again, uh, carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, Benjamin. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So they're going to let one stay in custody and the rest are going to go back and get Benjamin so that all can survive, so that they can get the grain. But then in verse 21, look at what they said. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You see, whether they felt guilty or not, which is the question that I have. 
Did you feel guilty through the years for what you did? Whether they felt guilt every day from the time they last saw Joseph to this time, they don't know that it's Joseph yet. Whether they felt it or not, what they admit in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, is that we are guilty. Whether they felt it or not, they recognize that they are. They are guilty for what they did. I have shared the story with you before about when after one of my younger brother's birthday parties, he got a $10 bill in one of his cards. And I was three or four years older than him. And I decided that he would never know if I trade him that $10 bill for a $1 bill of my own. To him, they look just the same. But to me, you know, I was going to you know, make a profit off this poor ignorant guy. And so he's got his $10 bill, and I go up to him with my crisp $1 bill, and I say, Patrick, I'd love to make a trade with you. These are the exact same piece of money, and I just kind of like the look of yours better. And so would you be willing to trade your bill for my bill? They're the exact same. Uh, and of course, he went for it, and I didn't feel guilty about that after it happened. I was pretty pleased with myself. I was happy with the profit that I turned. You know, I, I started with, uh, you know, a one, and I made nine bucks, so it was, you know, a pretty good day's work. I didn't feel guilty about that at first until I was confronted by my parents about it and punished, and then I felt pretty guilty. I didn't feel guilty about it. But make no mistake, I was guilty. I was guilty of being dishonest, of making that unfair trade. I was guilty of a wrong, even though I didn't feel that way. You know, in recent years, Germany has sought to bring some of the last living Nazi war criminals to justice. And in September of 2014, over 70 years after he began his work at Auschwitz, 93-year-old Oscar Groening, and here he is as an old man, was charged by state prosecutors with having been an accessory of murder on 300,000 counts. The trial commenced on April the 20th, 2015, and in an opening statement, Groening asked for forgiveness for his clerical role at Auschwitz. He said, for me, there's no question that I share moral guilt, and so I ask for forgiveness. And so it does seem that at the end, he admitted at least some guilt for his role in the horrors of Auschwitz. But in the end, it really didn't matter if Oscar Groening felt guilty or not. His crimes made him guilty. Listen to Reuben in chapter 42, verse 22. After the brothers have convened and they said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Now, they don't know that it's Joseph. They think. They have assumed that their actions have caused Joseph's death at some point through the years. So listen to Reuben. He said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? I told you not to do this, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They assume that somewhere along the line he's been killed. And now we're going to have to answer for it. Whether they felt guilty or not through the 22 years that they didn't see their brother Joseph, they recognize that they are guilty. And Reuben says, in so many words, we've got blood on our hands. We are to blame. And so this morning, as we think about guilt, as we think about Oscar Groening's guilt, 
the guilt of Joseph's brothers. Maybe you are thinking to yourself, Phew, I'm thankful that I don't have to carry around any guilt like that. I'm thankful I'm not guilty of crimes such as these, of this magnitude. Boy, that would sure be burdensome to have to carry around guilt like these folks. Oh, really? You're not guilty of anything? Go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're going to look at a portion of Peter's sermon on the first day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. You're familiar with the scene. They are gathered in Jerusalem, people from all over, listening to Peter preach. And he says in verse 22 of his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you know about Jesus. You've heard about him. Maybe you've even seen some of the miracles that he performed. But if you didn't, you've heard about some of the mighty signs and works and wonders that God did through him. You know about him. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, he says to the audience. You crucified him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. He looks his audience in the eye and he says, you're to blame. Now the strange thing about this is, what we learned back earlier in Acts chapter 2, is that there are folks gathered in Jerusalem from all over the place, and they've come for the the Jewish holiday of Pentecost. They've come from north, south, west, and east. They all speak different languages. They weren't there when Jesus was killed several days ago. Many of the folks in Peter's audience were not among the mobs shouting, crucify him, crucify him on trumped-up charges at his mock trial. They were not part of the group of Roman soldiers that drove spikes through the hands and the feet of Jesus. They were not there at the foot of the cross uh, casting lots for the Savior's clothes. They were nowhere near Jerusalem when Jesus was killed. And yet Peter here on the day of Pentecost looks out at his audience and says, you killed him. You crucified him. And we ought to hear him saying those words to us today. You had a hand in murdering the Savior of the the world. You killed Him. You put Him on that cross. How so, you say? Well, as we sing about, it was my sin that held Him there. Jesus bore my sin in His body on the tree. It was my sin along with the sins of all humanity, but it was my sin that compelled Jesus to go to the cross. It was my sin that compelled God to put this plan in motion to bring about the redemption of all humanity. It was my sin. It's my fault. I helped to crucify my Lord. Peter says it to them. Peter could just as easily say it to us. In fact, we ought to hear him saying it to us. We have blood on our hands. And we are at fault for a far worse crime than Joseph's brothers, than even Oscar groaning. We are guilty 
of the worst crime in human history. The death of our Lord. The death of the Son of God. You crucified Him. I crucified Him. And listen, we are guilty whether we feel that way or not. You didn't walk into church. Many of you didn't walk into church this morning with that on your mind. You didn't walk into church this morning feeling like it was my sins that held him there. You weren't feeling guilty, but let me tell you, the Scriptures communicate to us whether we feel it or not, we are. By our rebellion, by our sinfulness, by our disobedience to God's commands, by our decision to break relationship with God by our sins, we're guilty. Guilt is simply the state between the act of sin and the punishment of sin, whether you feel like it or not. It's the in-between state. Between sinning and the punishment that that sin deserves. In between, we call it guilt. And Reuben recognizes the brother's guilt in 42.22, the verse that we just looked at. He says, there is now a reckoning for our brother's blood. He believes that punishment has arrived for the sin that they committed. We're not going to have to answer to what we did to Joseph back in the day, from throwing him in the pit, from allowing him to be taken off to Egypt. Most certainly he's dead now, and we're to blame. There's blood on our hands. But then, something extraordinary happens. When we finally get to chapter 45 of the book of Genesis, Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. He comes clean. He can't handle it anymore. And he says, it's me. It's your long lost brother Joseph. And they don't believe him at first, but then he recounts some things to him that only he would know and they believe him. And you know what he does? He doesn't pile guilt on them. He deals with them graciously. He says, I want you to go back down to Egypt. I want you to get my dad. Jacob, I want to see him again. And he enlists the help of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they send all these wagons uh, up to the land of Canaan uh, with all of this grain and fruit and all these provisions to help bring the family down to Egypt. He lavishes them with gift after gift, blessing after blessing. He, after testing them a bit, after putting them through the ringer a bit, after making them sweat, He deals with his brothers graciously. He doesn't pour on extra guilt. He pours on extravagant grace. And that is a picture for how our Lord deals with us. For those who love Him. For those who fear Him. The psalmist knows this. Psalm 103 verses 8 and 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Doesn't that make you thankful? That now through Jesus, God does not operate with us according to our sins. What if He did? I mean, that ought to be enough to make us shiver in our boots, run a cold chill down our backs. What if God dealt with me based on all of the worst things that I have done? The thoughts that I have had, the words that I have spoken. What if He dealt with me according to my iniquities? But the psalmist says, for those who fear Him, He doesn't. And then the psalmist in 
1.30 says, If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? What's the answer to that question? If God was counting up, tallying up all our sins and all our iniquities, if He was dealing with us in that way, who could stand before Him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is not one single person would be able to stand if God was marking our iniquities. But the psalmist says with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In 1944, there was a 10-year-old little girl named Ava Kor. And she and her Jewish family were transported from their Romanian home to Auschwitz. Both of her parents and her two older sisters were killed at the camp. But she and her twin sister, Miriam, were subjected to horrific experiments at the hands of notorious Nazi doctor, Dr. Joseph Mengel. During this terrible ordeal, Oscar Groening quietly worked nearby, doing his thing, not saying a word, providing consent to the brutality by his silence. Fast forward 70 years, Groening's trial begins in 2015. And you know who is there to witness it? Ava Kor. Her sister long since passed. She's still living. A victim of the Holocaust at Auschwitz. And she has a chance at this trial to confront one of the men who allowed this to happen to her. And we might expect her to compound the guilt, pour on the guilt, to be harsh with him. And truth be told, that is what he deserves for what he did. He deserves to be scolded. He deserves to be shunned. To be reminded of the horrors that he put her through. And worse. But instead, she shook his hand. She went up to him. She shook his hand. She hugged him. And she offered him forgiveness. And this is an image of these two embracing at his trial. Do you need proof that God deals with his precious human creation graciously? Then look no further than the cross. Look no further than the cross. You see, the great irony of the cross is, I'm guilty of Jesus' death. You're guilty of Jesus' death. You had a hand in sending him there and putting him on the tree and driving the nails into his hands and feet. I'm guilty of it. And yet, because of his death, my guilt can be removed. It was my sin that held him there, but because of his willingness to hang there, my sin can now be removed. Isn't that incredible? Listen to what happens in Acts chapter 2 at the end of Peter's sermon. This is the last line. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And here he is again. He says, This Jesus whom you crucified. That's how he ends it. You crucified him. You might not have been in Jerusalem at the time, but by your sins you had a hand in sending him to that cross. And in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Pricked at the heart. They were convicted. Are you? I mean, we ought to be. When we consider this. That Jesus went to the cross for my sin. We ought to be cut to the heart. 
convicted as they were. And yet oftentimes it seems like, yeah, I've heard that before. I'm familiar with that teaching. Right, I, I know about that. I'm disappointed that I don't feel the way that they felt every time I consider the cross, because I ought to. They were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? How must we respond? How can we make this right? And Peter says, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that God is pouring out. The promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. You are guilty of Jesus hanging on that cross, but if you repent and if you're baptized, your sins will be forgiven and your guilt will be removed. And that's all it took, folks. Because 3,000 people that day responded in that very way. There were 3,000 folks who repented, who turned away from those sins that caused Jesus to go to the cross. There were 3,000 people who went down into water who were immersed for the forgiveness of their sins and came up new creatures having received the gift of the Spirit. That's all it took. And there's some people here today whose guilt has not been removed. And let me tell you, it's there whether you feel it or not. It's there because you have sin in your life. You have rebelled against God. That rebellion has placed Jesus on the cross. It's there. And the message of the Gospel is... You can come, and that guilt and that sin can be removed from you because of what Jesus did on the cross. The cross, it's extraordinary. The cross is both the result of my sin and the rescue from my sin. Jesus bears the punishment my guilt deserves so that I can be forgiven and guilt-free. 3,000 people responded on that day, Will we have one today who will come having been cut to the heart, having acknowledged that you still bear guilt because you've yet to lay it down at the foot of the cross? I hope that we will. You know, around 17 years after Joseph and his brothers reunite, after Joseph brings the whole family, Jacob and everybody, down to Egypt to to live uh, in prosperity, Jacob dies. Jacob and his beloved son Joseph, they reunite before his death. It's a beautiful reunion. You can read about it in the latter part of Genesis. But 17 years after they come to Egypt, he dies. And in chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis, the brothers start wondering if Joseph's forgiveness and grace is going to give out. It's going to peter out. They say, oh no, Jacob's died I wonder if Joseph is now finally going to repay us for what we did to him. And so they go back to him and they bow before him and they say, please forgive us for what we did to you. And Joseph is weeping and he says, you need not worry about that. You need not fear. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It was all part of God's plan. Don't fear. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your kids. 17 years and they were still wondering whether or not Joseph had really forgiven them. Sometimes we lug around our guilt. Sometimes God has forgiven us, but we haven't forgiven ourselves. 
And you know, when we do that, it is an affront to God because it is communicating to God that I view myself as a judge on a higher plane than even God. God is willing to forgive me, but I'm not willing to forgive myself. That's placing myself in a a greater position than even God. And sometimes, like Joseph's brothers, we lug around our guilt. We have trouble forgiving ourselves. Long after God has removed it, we must lay it down. And sometimes, we deal with people not according to God's grace, but according to their past guilt. After folks have come and they have humbled themselves before God and they have confessed their sins and been brought back into a relationship with God, we don't deal with them on that basis. We still hold their prior life over their head. And we operate with them according to their past guilt, not according to God's present grace. And we dare not if we are to be pleasing to God. And even as we Christians are still sinning and incurring guilt as we confess our sins, Christ's blood overrides that guilt on a daily basis. You see, the blood of Christ that once stained my hands now cleanses my soul. Do you need to be washed clean by that blood? Do you need to come and ask for prayers this morning if you're struggling? We invite you to do that right now as we stand and sing.